Good morning. Uh, for those that, wow, that was good. Uh, for those that don't know me, I'm Bruce Struggs, my pastor of community and spiritual formation here. And I'm just going to take a moment to thank the youth for the pancake breakfast. So, yeah, that was, that was really good. And if you get lethargic during my sermon, I will assume it is from the pancakes. And uh, if you fall asleep, I won't take it. I won't take it personally. Um, but I've been on staff here for 12 years. I oversee small groups and connecting and hospitality, um, all sorts of other fun stuff. And it is my pleasure to share with you this morning from God's word. And prior to Lent, we were going through Proverbs in a series called Get Wise. And we stepped back for a little while to focus on Lent and leading into Easter And we're going to be back in that series, Get Wise, and I'm kicking it off today. We're going to be looking at Proverbs 5. If you have your Bible, I would encourage you, whether it's on your phone or in the seat pocket in front of you, or if you brought yours, I would encourage you to open up. We're going to read read that this morning. But before I begin, I want to share uh, about my kids. One of them is here this morning. Darren is 12, and he's sitting right there. Uh, And he and his twin sister this fall uh, joined the mountain bike team. And uh, yeah, there they are. Look at them. Look at them. Yeah, it's impressive. And uh, they did a bunch of mountain bike races. And I've always enjoyed biking. I grew up on a bike, um, you know, did a lot of it. And, and over the last few years, especially through COVID, I've been trying to bike here to work um, at least once a week in the summer. But all of that biking was either on roads or like the loose line trail, um, nice and flat, Right. And, and they joined the mountain bike team, which does single track. And you can see kind of a picture. That's what single track is. It's single file. Mostly you're passing in wide spots, but otherwise it's single file. And, and you're going over berms and hills and other things. And I didn't really do that. Um, again, flat trails. That was my sweet spot. And, uh, but a friend of mine called me up and said, Hey, if you want to go with your kids, I have an old mountain bike that needs some work. I'll give it to you. And then you can go mountain biking. Great. So I replaced some parts. I got a new crank, got a new bottom bracket. For those of you that are bikers, we can talk about that later. Um, replaced some parts and good to go. And so throughout the summer and into the fall, we did some mountain biking together. We'd go out to Lake Rebecca or some other places and we'd do some mountain biking and, and they quickly surpassed me in skill and ability to the point where I was like, you guys go, I'll try and keep up, and we'll have a great time. And then we had a nice fall day, right? The morning off, the morning free, and uh, the kids went to school, and my wife went to work, and I was at home, and I thought, instead of biking to work this week, I'm going to get my mountain bike out, I'm going to go to Lake Rebecca by myself, and I'm going to have a great time going at my pace, and I'm going to get a workout, and... My coworkers will appreciate this. I'll shower before going into work. This will be great. This was, and it was one of those cool, little bit of frost in the morning, but sunny, crisp fall mornings. This is going to be perfect. And so we get up, they all go do their things. I get my gear on. I get my water bottle full. I get the bike on the back of the car. I drive there. There's nobody there. I unload the bike. You know, just taking it in. And I get on my bike and I start pedaling and I go, man, the trail seems a little softer than usual. It's a little harder. What's the deal? And I look down and at that moment I realize my tires are underinflated, but just a little. I mean, 
it's not that bad. I thought, no problem. If you've, if you've never done single track mountain bike, there's a lot of loop backs. So I'm starting on a beginner loop. I'm going to do the loop. It'll bring me right back to the parking lot. I have a pump. I'll air it up and then I'll go hit the aggressive stuff. You know, like, but this is the beginner loop. Like I should be fine. And I was for the first, you know, mostly straight parts, but then I hit the first real curve on the beginner loop. And my tire was so underinflated that it actually rolled. The rim of the tire bit into the dirt. It kicked hard to the right. I went head over heels, over the handlebars, landed on my shoulder, and got up. You know, it's very clear when you wipe out like that. There's dirt everywhere. It's very clear that something happened. Either you decided to roll around before you got on your bike, or you wiped out. And uh, so I, I quick dust myself off. You know, okay, nobody... Nobody saw, we're good to go. And I get on my bike and start pedaling and realize immediately that my bike is no longer functional. Somehow in the wreck, I have dismantled the functionality of my bike. And so I had to, from the first curve of the beginner loop, pick up my bike and walk of shame back (laughs) to the parking lot, carrying my bike, you know, And just hoping, hoping and praying that nobody will come and see me. Because again, it's obvious where I wiped out. And it's obvious that I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) And I share that story because that, in a nutshell, is what Proverbs 5 is getting at. And Proverbs 5 is going to be talking about how we find ourselves ensnared in foolish action, in folly, how we find ourselves entrapped. And for me, it wasn't that my bike catastrophically failed, that everything was great, I made all the right decisions, and then, you know, my tire exploded or something. It was bad, indeci- bad decision after bad decision after bad decision after bad, until I was far enough down the path, and unfortunately not that far down the path, where it was too late, where it culminated in me being ensnared in a foolish mistake. And so I want to start with the last verse from Proverbs 5. For the lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their own great folly. And as we think about being led astray by our own great folly, it's not a great folly as in, I mean, occasionally we make one really bad, dumb decision, but oftentimes I think we know that we are led astray by little decision after little decision after little decision until we find ourselves beyond the point of no return. And so that's what we're going to look at. And I was so captivated by the idea of getting out on my mountain bike by myself that I failed to notice all the little things along the way. I failed to remember that when my kids go to a mountain biking race, the coach takes their bike and hangs it up on a rack and goes through it tip to tail to make sure it is ready to hit the trail. I didn't do that. The coach goes out with the kids and warms them up before they hit the race, before they get on the course. They start on something nice and easy and flat. I didn't do that. All of the things, I was captivated by this idea of being out on the trail myself that I failed to notice all the little mistakes I'd made along the way. And so that's what we're going to talk about. What is captivating you? What is captivating me? What is captivating us? And what should be? 
And so one quick thing I want to talk about, though, before we dig in, is chapter 5 of Proverbs 5 does not stand by itself. It is part of a larger book. Proverbs 1 through 9 were were written, uh, most theologians, theologians agree, by one author. Most people assume that was Solomon. But it was written as one thought. And so it's flowing from thought to thought. Later on in Proverbs, if you read, you'll get to uh, these antithetical thoughts. Antithetical meaning opposite, where the author will say, you know, um, duh, this is the thing, and don't do this. And it's like one sentence long, and then they move on to another thing, right? He who spares the rod hates his child. And then the next one is something completely unrelated. And that's how a lot of Proverbs function, but not this section, These were written together, they were intended to stand together, and they were written as an antithetical ode or song. So chapter 5 is an antithetical ode doing a compare and contrast. And I share that because if you read this chapter just by itself without taking into account the larger context, it sounds like this passage is only talking about adultery. Because that's how it starts. And it's not just talking about adultery. And so if you read that passage and you walk away with, therefore, don't do adultery, that's fine, that's good. I'm, I want to be clear, don't do adultery. That's, that is in the passage. But that is not all it is saying. And we are missing the larger picture. I would also encourage you that, that there have been times throughout history and there have been uh, theologians and pastors who have used this passage to cover up their own infidelity that there, there have been people who have used this passage, quite frankly, to blame the other person. And if you think this passage is about that, you're missing the bigger picture. Because it takes two, right? There are men and there are women out there who are both trying to lead the other person astray. This is not just a female problem. And it's important to know that because in chapter 4, wisdom is portrayed as feminine, and here, folly is portrayed as feminine. And that's intentional and intended to be taken together. That it's not masculine and feminine. They're both alluring and desirable for different reasons. And that is part of why they're portrayed that way. And the analogy of pursuing fidelity in marriage and avoiding adultery is a great analogy for pursuing fidelity in our relationship with God and wisdom and avoiding folly. So hear the larger picture and don't focus too much on just the adultery. And so the question being put before us in this passage is what are you focusing on or what are you allowing to captivate you instead of being content with what you have? We are all being called from this passage to ask ourselves what captivates us, both men and women, both in marriage and out, what is captivating us? And coming off of the heels of Lent and Easter, I think we all can admit and should admit freely that we've all been captivated by something we shouldn't have. We've all been led astray. Isaiah 53, 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of of us all. So we're going to start by reading our passage. I would ask, like we normally do when we read a passage of scripture, for everyone to stand um, while I read this in honor of God's word. And this is Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. 
For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life, her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me, do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you lose your honor to others and your dignity to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich the house of another. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or turn my ear to my instructors. And I was soon in serious trouble in the assembly of God's people. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die. Let a, led astray by their own great folly. You may be seated. And so I want to ask it again. What, what is captivating you? And we see this in the first six verses. What is captivating you? And as we have looked at, pro, at the Proverbs, Kevin has mentioned this before, that the Proverbs aren't guarantees. It's not computer code. If A, then B. If you spare the rod, you hate your child, A, then B. If you raise a child in the way they will go, then when they're old, they will not turn from it, A, then B. That is not how the Proverbs were intended to be understood. They are not computer code guaranteed outcomes. And as one theologian puts it, the theological assumptions of the book are often more important than the actual words. And so that's where we need to look at the larger context. What is the theological assumption the author is making here? The theological assumption is that fidelity in marriage is an analogy for fidelity in our relationship with God. The assumption here is to draw a parallel between the call to fidelity in marriage and the call to fidelity with God. Because there is an alluring sweetness in life to things that seek to harm us. And we all know that. We all know the temptation for the thing we want that seems so sweet and and pleasant in the moment. And it draws us away. The shortcut. It draws us away from what is truly good. The lips of the adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. And it's interesting to me that the, the words here are as sharp as a double-edged sword. And if you've spent any time in God's word, you know that there's another time that something is referred to as sharp as a double-edged sword. And that's God's word itself. Both can cut. The question is, why? Why do they cut? Another proverb says, the word, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Are these words from the, from the alluring sweetness seeking to make us better or ultimately seeking to cause us harm? And we make these assumptions about ourselves that we understand, that we know better, that 
I can look out at my world and I can go, obviously God isn't aware that this is the better option for me. I deserve this, maybe, is another way we say it. I am owed this. And so we are called to discern, to divide between our desires and God's desires. Oftentimes, when we interact with Scripture and when we interact with God, we assume we have all the information. And oftentimes we do not. What we think is best is far different from what God knows is best. And we miss that step. And we miss acknowledging our lack of information and insight. And so we go for the thing that on the surface looks sweeter. And we need that interactive knowledge. All throughout Proverbs, Kevin talked about wisdom is really interactive knowledge. It's, it's knowledge of God and his word in a way beyond head knowledge. In the same way that I get to know my wife or my kids or my friends, it's through experience and time, not through what's written about them on a sheet of paper. And the same is true with God and wisdom. We need to interact with God. We need to have that relationship with God. The relational experience with God to know that he knows best that we trust his intentions for us are better. And where in the moment we can go, but that seems like the better option. We need to learn to trust that when God says no, there's a reason. And ultimately, we are better for it. And if you look at the end of this, it is bitter as gall. It is painful. There is an after when we choose not God's best. There's always an after. And I think I can look around this room with confidence and say we've all experienced that. That time where we took that shortcut, we peeked over the friend's shoulder because I just didn't have time to study like I should have and this grade matters too much. Or where somebody at work encouraged us, this is how you get ahead. This is the way things are done around here. And sometimes we've experienced the after when we've realized that that was bitter as gall. That that was painful. One time I stood up here, one of the first times I ever preached a sermon here at Wyzetta Free, I stood up here, and, and I forget what the point of the sermon was. I forget which sermon it was. If you really want to, you can go back and find it. Um, that's fine. But as I was preparing for it, I found this story online, and it was perfect. It was great. It hit every point I was trying to make, and it ended with the same conclusion I wanted to make. It was ideal. It was excellent. And so I grabbed it, and and it was from a reliable website like (laughs) sermonillustrations.com. Totally, totally trustworthy. They always cite their sources. And um, I grabbed this this illustration. I thought, oh, this is great. And I put it in there, and I got up here, and I preached the sermon, and I got to that part, and I shared that part, and, and there was this audible, oh, Mm, from, from, from you all. <laughs> it was great. And then the sermon got done. And a man came up to me and he said, hey, that illustration, where, where did you find that? And he goes, I was there. That, that didn't happen. That, that wasn't true. And let me explain to you why not only did it not happen because I was there, but it also could not have happened mathematically, scientifically, or something. That was a really awkward conversation for me. That was bitter as gall to realize that I had taken a shortcut because I thought I knew best. This is perfect. 
and the perfect story, you know, and lives will be changed. And so it was easy to justify because I was captivated by the idea of a perfect story or a perfect illustration. Folly mistakes leads us unaware into areas we should not go. Buyer's remorse. So the question is, how do we avoid this fate? How do we not get in that situation? Well, the passage goes on and it explains to us by living with intentionality. We need to live with intentionality. Look at the way it describes foolishness. Wandering aimlessly, her way leads to death. We need to do the opposite. It's an antithetical ode. We need to do the opposite. We need to live with intentionality. And we see that right away in verse 8. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. That is intentionality. We all know that listening, and the author makes it clear, do not forsake your mother's teaching. This isn't just listening to hear. This is listening to put into practice. And that takes intentionality. Try it sometime. Try, have somebody come up to you and explain a complicated process and that you will have to enact and kind of sort of listen to them and see how it goes. Anybody who's worked in IT knows that the number one question is, have you turned it off and back on again? Because so many people fail to do the first thing they're always told to do because they never really listen. It's that interactive knowledge we need to know God. And we know through interacting with intentionality. And we see this intentionality throughout the entire book. We're in chapter 5, but it really started all the way in chapter 1. This intentionality keeps coming up again and again. Proverbs 2.2, turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, application. Proverbs 3.3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. See the intentionality in those? You don't stumble into wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not, on your, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, you'll find wisdom when you bump into it. Like That's not what it says. There's intentionality we have to put into it. We have to pursue it. So by the time we get to Proverbs 5, this idea should be sitting with us, this intentionality. So when we read, when we read verse 8, that we are to keep a path far from her, to not even go near the door, those areas that tempt us are to be avoided. We don't even go down the street. And look at that intentionality. It's not, you know, go ahead, go next to it. Just don't go in the door. It's don't even go near it. Stay the, go the other direction. Know where you tend to get ensnared and walk the other way. The difference between asking, apologizing, and repentance is intentionality. Apologizing is saying, I'm sorry. Repenting is turning and seeking to make it right to not do it again. It's intentionality. We need to live with intentionality. And so we must pursue intentionality with God to find wisdom. We need to pursue it. Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline. And in it, he breaks down the spiritual disciplines into three categories. And, and I find his categories helpful for us as we explore this idea of living with intentionality, of pursuing the spiritual disciplines. His categories are inward, outward, and corporate. That we need to pursue these disciplines of, of intentionality, of living with God 
And so I'm gonna, we're going to put them on the screen as I go through them, these inward, outward, and corporate, and we're going to talk about them. And I would encourage you that as, we, as you read them on the screen and as we talk about them, if there's a spot where you need to pursue intentionality with God that resonates with you, pursue it. Set it up. Figure out how to do it. Live with intentionality. And these are just suggestions. It's not an exhaustive list. There's other spiritual disciplines. Google will lead you to all sorts of them. C.S. Lewis has lists. There's, there's all sorts of places you can go. Inward, we can focus on prayer, fasting, study, meditation. And that meditation is meditation of Scripture. Prayer reminds us who God is and who we are. Fasting reminds us we do not need the things we think we need to survive. Study and meditation on Scripture puts God's Word in our hearts and prepares us for a time when we need those words on quick draw, when we need them. Oftentimes when Scripture comes to my head, I don't have time to look it up, and that verse pops into my head when I need it. The Holy Spirit guides me, and that comes through spending time. You don't memorize Scripture by sleeping on it. You have to spend that time. And you'll notice that I put... For all of them, as I was going through this and preparing, I realized that we as a church have opportunities to step into one in each category coming in the next month and a half. So if there's one of those that you go, hey, I need that, we're doing it. You can do it with us. This is, you don't have to do this solo. So inward, we have 24-7 prayer. That's an inward one. You can also do drive-through prayer, but that's more service, but we'll get there. But it's an inward one. Sign up for 24-7 prayer. Take some time. Spend some time with God. Outward, we have simplicity, solitude, submission, service. Simplicity allows us to avoid the the temptations of greed, the temptation to put our stock in earthly things where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. Solitude forces us to slow down and hear God's voice. Submission to others reminds us that we are not God. And service reminds us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And we have Serve Day coming up. And right around the 1st of May, the signups will open up for that, where you can sign up on a Sunday morning to go and serve and be those hands and feet of Jesus for a day. Maybe that's an area you need to push into. And finally, corporately. Corporately, we have confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. Confession reminds us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Worship helps us see God for who he is and to honor him. Guidance helps us rely on the Spirit of God to lead us as a body and as individuals. And celebration requires us to look back and see what God has done. And celebration is corporate because we need to share it with others. It's one thing to sit back and go, God, you've done this in my life and I thank you for it. It's another thing to tell other people what God has done. Tell somebody. If God has done a work in your life, share that. Share that with your small group, with your friends, with your community. Share it with me. Share it with somebody else. We would love to, on Celebration Sunday, share some of those stories. But we need to know them first. People need to be willing to share what God has done. So again, look through these practices and think about what areas you need to push into. Where do you need to spend some extra time and energy? Where is God leading you to live with some intentionality? What is the thing that this week you need to add to your schedule so that you can have intentionality in your relationship with God to avoid folly, to avoid the sin and the temptations that ensnare? And lastly, our passage points to the blessing of contentment. 
the blessing of contentment. Why do we do these disciplines? Because that discipline word is not the same discipline we use when we talk about punishment for misbehavior. Okay, it's one thing to get disciplined at school or at home or at work for behavior. That's not the discipline we're talking about here. This discipline is the same discipline as getting up early to go exercise and work out, pushing away the second plate of nachos instead of eating it while you watch your third movie. That's discipline. That's what I need to work on. That's discipline. But why do we do it? Should it be this gutted out, grinded out, you know, nose to the grindstone? Is that what we do these disciplines for? Are these just work? More tasks, more things, more stuff. No. Contentment. These lead to contentment. Proverbs 5, 19. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The image we get there is not one of drudgery and work. The analogy of a doe and a, de- and a, a, a male and female deer delighting in each other. Of a husband and a wife delighting in each other. Those aren't drudgery pictures or shouldn't be. It's not drudgery. These disciplines should not be a thing that you feel, that feel burdensome and disciplinary. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, talks about uh, learning Greek poetry. And he started by learning the Greek language. Now, I am not one for Greek poetry or the Greek language, but he was, and that's great. Um, but he had to start by doing it for good grades. He started learning Greek language to get good marks in school that led him to value reading the Iliad and the Odyssey in the Greek language and valuing that where the desire to learn Greek for the sheer joy of it, which I can't understand, but that's fine, overwhelmed his desire to simply get good grades. That's, what it, that's where discipline comes in. That's how it started for me with getting in God's word. Getting in God's word in the morning, I am not a morning person. I need my coffee and I need some time if you expect me to be nice to you. (laughs) And getting in God's word in the morning was not something that came natural to me, but I knew I needed to do it. And so I downloaded an app that gave me a check mark every day that I read the Bible. And that was enough for my personality to find it significant. But over time that changed over time, that changed to the point where um, I, was, I was on a motorcycle trip last fall and um, didn't have cell phone reception, and so I didn't get credit for one of my days. <laughs> and it didn't really bother me because I still spent time in God's word, and now I know the days that I don't. And it feels like I've missed a valuable thing, almost as if I had missed my coffee, which I never miss either. But we should move to that. That's the contentment it moves to. Proverbs 5, 21. For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline, they will die. Led astray by their own great folly. So how do the deeds of the wicked ensnare them? Again, it's not a cataclysmic thing. You don't find yourself at work all of a sudden with the opportunity to embezzle 10 grand, having not wandered a path aimlessly to get there. How do we find that contentment? 
We are, we are like the mythical frog in the pot of water that the temperature slowly keeps increasing and increasing and increasing and we don't even realize we're being boiled to death. How do we find that contentment? That contentment comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. That's it. Our goal as Christians in finding godly wisdom is not to be smarter than everybody or to have secret knowledge or to be looked up to by our friends. The goal of wisdom is to have such a relationship with Christ that we are content with him, though everything else fail. Saturday, between Good Friday and Easter, I was at a funeral for my grandmother. Passed away at 92 after battling uh, dementia for many years. And so for the last few years, uh, when I would go and visit her, she didn't even know who I was. Um, The last time I went to visit her, just days before she passed away, I sat with her and she kept asking me the same question. Who are you? Why are you here? But she was so kind and happy to see this person who showed up in her room for reasons she had no understanding. You don't get to be that content at the end of your life without living a life full of contentment. I want to be that person. That at the end of my life, if everything else has fallen apart, I lay on my deathbed content knowing that I have Jesus Christ. We can be thankful for all the blessings we have, our health, our job, our kids, our family, our friends, good weather, I don't know, whatever, you golf, whatever you're thankful for. We can be thankful for those things, but as soon as we elevate them to more important than they should be, they will ensnare us and they will lead us to death. Contentment comes from having a relationship with Christ and Christ alone. Not meaning we don't have relationships with others, but it has the utmost priority in our life, and that leads to contentment. So I will ask again, just like I did at the beginning, what is captivating you? Are you so captivated by the quick fix, by the easy road? Or are you pursuing being captivated by God? When you read this passage, are you being drawn aside by the alluring temptation of the moment? Or are you being captivated in the wife of your youth, in your relationship with Jesus Christ? So we end where we began. What is captivating you? As Joshua put it, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as I read this, but as Joshua put it to the Israelites in Joshua 24, verse 15, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Or maybe how he would put it today, choose you this day who you will serve. Because if you don't choose, he'll be chosen for you. And you will serve the gods of the land you live in or the gods of your past sins and temptations. Or you choose intentionally to pursue God and live with that intentionality.